In this episode, we put together all the pieces that we've covered so far in the Polyvagal 101 series and how they relate to trauma. What it is, how we get there, and what to do about it. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist obsessed with the polyvagal theory. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. As usual, put yourself first. I do keep every episode as safe as I can, but just by the nature of the topics, you may experience some stuff come up, so take a break if you need to. This episode in particular could prove to be kind of challenging for you. Uh, I'll be naming a few things, but I'm not really going to go into any specific uh, details of traumatic events, but uh, you know, just be careful with this one. This podcast is not therapy, nor is it intended to be a replacement for therapy. So first off, what is trauma? This is something that is, this word is used a lot, widely, widely used, possibly overused, but it's more than uh, the pieces of a diagnosis. It's more than how we casually say we've been traumatized by this or that. Is it, you know, being overwhelmed in a moment of danger? Yeah, and that's part of it. Is it too much too soon? Sure. These are probably some phrases you've heard used along with uh, the word trauma or as a way to define it. Is it, does it have something to do with the quote unquote reptilian brain? Yeah, sure. But there, there is more to it. And according to the polyvagal theory and to somatic experiencing as well, uh, that modality, it, the trauma is more than that. And we need to tie together all these different pieces that we've covered so far in the polyvagal theory or the polyvagal 101 series here on this podcast. Trauma is being stuck in an autonomic state of defense. So that would be the sympathetic flight fight state, shutdown, or even the freeze mix state. And again, these are things we've already covered. So if, you, if these are new to you, go back a few episodes and listen to all those. Trauma is being stuck down the polyvagal ladder. It's being stuck in an autonomic state of defense. Being traumatized means that we don't have access to our state of safety. But the state of safety is kind of really important in life. This is what keeps the defensive states from becoming defensive. When our safety state is active, that repurposes those defensive pathways for pro-social activity. So the shutdown state with the autonomic state of safety is repurposed for stillness. The flight-fight state, when active along with the safety state, is repurposed for play. So if we can't have access to our safety state, the ventral vagal pathways, then that means we're simply stuck in a defensive state. And that's what trauma really is, is that we're saying that we're, our autonomic nervous system is stuck in a defensive state. What I'm describing is another polyvagal concept that we haven't discussed yet, and that's called the vagal break. The vagal break is the influence of the social engagement system on the heart. When the vagal break is active, meaning when the ventral vagal pathways are active, that keeps the heart at a calmer pace. When the vagal break is not active, meaning the social engagement system is not active, or it's not on, then we're in a defensive state. If we don't have the social engagement system on, if we don't have the vagal break active, then our bodies are in a defensive state. The vagal break calms the heart. It takes us out of a mobile defense or it allows mobility to return coming from shutdown into that uh, mobile sympathetic flight fight energy. We have to have the vagal break active in order to allow that energy to return or to come out of that sympathetic state. It's really important that the vagal break is extremely important for daily functioning. I mean, if we didn't have the vagal break active, we'd be running and fighting or shutting down all day, every day, right? We'd always be in some sort of defensive state. 
The vagal break, uh, this probably has a lot to do with who gets traumatized or who does not get traumatized because trauma through the lens of polyvagal theory and uh, psychophysiology, trauma is an issue of not the event, but the impact of the event. So two people can go through more or less the same event and, and walk away from that event in much different autonomic states immediately after or months after or maybe even years after. The vagal break probably has a lot to do with that. If you and I were in a bus crash, you and I would walk away from that potentially with much different results because the issue here is not the event, the issue is the impact of the event. And if one of us has a stronger vagal break, then our capacity to not be traumatized by that event is probably going to be greater. The vagal break comes from exercising the social engagement system. It comes from having a really you know, solid childhood worth of accessing that ventral vagal social engagement uh, pathway, pathways. That comes from you know, good enough parenting. It doesn't have to be perfect parenting, but good enough parenting can obviously really help out with that. Having strong, healthy attachments, healthy relationships, having safe environments, having a healthy history of play. So with that healthy history of play, we're going to be accessing those defensive pathways, but again, they'll be repurposed for pro-social behavior. So through play, we'll, through a healthy history of play, we'll be able to exercise those defensive pathways while safe. Now, the purpose of my course, Building Safety Anchors, is not to relieve or heal someone's trauma. It, it really is to help them feel safe and to help them exercise doing so for 30 days of pretty small doses of uh, learning and practicing and you know doing and experiencing. So building safety anchors can really help with building someone's vagal break because every day you're accessing your safety pathways or learning how to. You're accessing those safety pathways and you're building the strength of, of your capacity to be able to feel safe and really noticing what it's like to feel safe and that practices exercising those pathways. So the point of building safety anchors is not to like delve into the trauma pain and the memories and, and to, you know, journal around them and whatnot. No, no, no. The point of building safety anchors is really to feel safe and to help someone discover what brings them to feeling safe. It's building safety anchors, things that anchor you in the present moment in your body in safety. There are actually two paths to trauma. Okay, so how do we, how do we get stuck in this defensive state? And there's, there's two paths to being stuck in a defensive state. This can look many different ways, but there's two basic paths. The first one is surviving an acute event. So surviving a thing, and this can be referred to as like shock trauma, something that Peter Levine uh, is known to, to really specialize in. So you survived a thing that could be sexual assault, it could be a war uh, environment, it could be natural disaster, it could be surviving a dog attack. This path can come in many, many different forms. What's happening when we're surviving this acute life event, this one-time, potentially one-time thing, of course it could be more, but at least one-time thing is that we're neurocepting danger, probably accurately, while also neurocepting life threat simultaneously. So we are mobilized while immobilizing at the same time. This, this is correlated, in my mind, with the freeze mixed state. So we're mobilized, we're highly charged up, the heartbeat's going, the engine's running, right, to run away or fight but we were either forced into mobilization or we're also sort of perceiving that we cannot escape the situation, so we're shutting down at the same time. 
we're mobilizing while shutting down, and that's going to look like that freeze mixed state. To me, this correlates really heavily with PTSD, the, the actual diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. And I had an episode on how PTSD and freeze uh, really go kind of together. I talked about that and the next one, which is CPTSD and a chronic disruption of connectedness. I talked about those previously. I'll, I'll link to them in the, in the description. So we're mobilizing while shutting down. Now, in a, in a freeze, traumatized, mixed state that can persist for years and years and years, the social engagement system can still develop, and that individual can potentially live a functional life and have healthy relationships. Like, it's possible, right? Being stuck in that traumatic state can absolutely be debilitating, and especially in certain contexts or around certain things that can trigger that stuck defensive energy. But the individual can still develop normally otherwise and live a potentially very functional life, have healthy relationships, but around certain things, around certain people, around certain smells or textures or whatever it is, they might get triggered back into that, that moment that they survived. This kind of trauma could also come from someone who has had a healthy enough childhood. They've maybe been not just functional in life, but really successful, but they could survive something and still be traumatized, but they could still have a healthy life overall. If the proper supports are in place, if they have access to necessary uh, self-care resources, if they have you know, emotional support from people that are close to them, then they, they can still live an overall function, functioning life. But when it comes to certain things, that's where uh, that, that past trauma stuff is going to get triggered and all that energy can come back up. Now, that's different than the second path to trauma, which is a chronic disruption of connectedness. This is, to me, this is associated with shutdown, like a chronic shutdown where it's like day in, day out shutdown. Uh, but also a lot of potentially freeze, not, I don't think it's necessary, but potentially a lot of free stuff along with this chronic disruption of connectedness. I associate this with CPTSD, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. So a chronic disruption of connectedness where our safety pathways, our attachments are constantly being severed, which can come through acts, repeated acts that will have that freeze type of flavor to it. But that chronic disruption of connectedness where running away doesn't work, fighting doesn't work, or will not work. And the last resort is basically the the individual, probably a child, is going to be perceiving or neurocepting that their life is in danger because they have no healthy attachments. Maybe their basic needs are not being taken care of. So they exist in a very disconnected, shutdown place day in, day out. Now they can get to that shutdown place through repeated acts of acute, traumatic, uh, potentially traumatic incidents. But I think that someone could also get to that shutdown, that chronic shutdown place without, without that. They can get there through uh, neglect and through abandonment. With something like neglect, there's not exactly that, that acute, intense, overwhelming freeze thing. It's just this, it could be an ongoing disconnection, an ongoing disconnection from a safe attachment, an ongoing uh, lack of basic care from people that should be taking care of you. As, especially as, as a child, I mean. And that could leave someone in, in a very disconnected, shutdown place. With situations that involve neglect, that social engagement system is not going to develop. That big old break is not going to develop. They're not going to be meeting developmental milestones, including those uh, necessary milestones relating to social engagement. And if you don't meet one milestone, then meeting the next milestone in a healthy way is a lot more difficult. 
The chronic disruption of connectedness is going to involve lots of loneliness, abandonment, rejection, isolation. And this, yes, it'll leave someone in a very shut down state. With ongoing abuse, there is this lack of safety relief. So like I said, this chronic disruption of connectedness can come from ongoing acute events. Having the potential to get to safety is extremely important, even in these, I mean, it's always important, but in these situations where there's ongoing acute events, having that safe person or that safe school or that safe teacher, the safe grandparent that someone goes to can really help them to not exist and stay stuck in, in a shutdown state. I had a client who as a child and even into their adolescence, they were going through lots of sexual abuse from the the father in the home. They obviously had a lot of the freeze energy happening during the events where they would immobilize, but also be highly revved up at the same time. But since it was ongoing and they had no real safety, eventually they were left in a shutdown state because there was no safe adult to rescue them and take them seriously in the situation. But they did have, and what kept them going and gave them some sort of hope was they had a grandparent that they would visit. And being with that grandparent allowed them to feel safe and to feel some level of connection. And this person was the safest, most important person in their life. This client that I was working with, they said that when things really changed for them was not during the abuse, obviously that was a huge deal, but what really the, the the pivotal moment in their life was when that grandparent died because when that grandparent died there really was no safety there was no escape there was no relief and that's when they really felt them go themselves go into a deep deep shutdown state along with all of the freeze uh, events that that had accumulated in their body and they were already in a stuck defensive state of freeze but they also had a heavy flavor of shutdown because there was absolutely no escape. So having that one safe person in your life can act, can really help somebody out. And when you don't have that one safe person or that one safe place, that really can leave somebody in, in a deep state of shutdown. This individual is less likely to be able, in my opinion, to be able to identify and maintain healthy relationships. Their social engagement potential has not been developed. Those pathways have not been developed. They have not been exercised through healthy play. So their ability to cope with life, to self-regulate, to make and form and maintain healthy relationships is going to be really hampered. Their ability to recognize safety in other people is going to be really, uh, it's really compromised. The CPTSD diagnosis, it's a pretty extreme one. It's uh, for some reason still not recognized in DSM, but um, I think we generally in in this area that you know polyvagal theory and attachment and whatnot we recognize cptsd is to be a pretty severe diagnosis that um of course there's always hope but it's a, it's a difficult one human beings stay stuck in trauma uh, we are spooked when we feel the bodily sensations of coming out of immobility so coming out of that shutdown state there's going to be this return of sympathetic flight fight energy and when we feel that we get kind of freaked out it spooks us. It scares us. And when we feel that come up, we actually get sent right back down the ladder as our bodies attempt to go up the polyvagal ladder. When we feel that energy, we get sent right back down. 
partly because we're not used to it, partly because we have all these stories in our mind that that pop up, like I'm too weak to handle this or or I, I don't deserve happiness or I don't deserve healthy relationships. So we have stories in our mind. We get freaked out by the feelings. But really, we also just don't have the vagal break strength to tolerate that energy coming back. It's, it's extremely important that we have a really nice grounding, a nice anchoring and safety so that when we feel that stuff come back, that we can tolerate it. But human, again, humans stay stuck in trauma. Our bodies are stuck in a state of defense. We get stuck in the experience of what we've been through. We get stuck in the pain of it, the sadness, the humiliation, the disgust, the embarrassment, the loneliness, all the stuff that stems from that traumatic event itself. We get stuck in those feelings as well. And when we feel them, we avoid them because it's vulnerable. It's scary. We literally might feel like we're dying as we feel these things, as we feel that energy returning. It might feel very panicky. It might feel rageful. It might feel overwhelming. All this stuff we we avoid. We we do we do things to distract ourselves. We entertain ourselves incessantly. We tell ourselves and each other to be strong. I actually have a couple episodes on how we keep ourselves and each other stuck in states of defense. I'll again I'll link to those um, in the description. Human beings do things like isolating ourselves. Human beings do things like creating stories. We create beliefs about the events or about ourselves. We also isolate ourselves, and that results in being stuck in trauma. We keep it a secret. That keeps us stuck in a traumatized state. While animals don't do this, human beings do this, and that keeps us stuck in trauma. It is possible to come out of a traumatized state, however. Very good news, right? Animals, again, animals come out of trauma or potential trauma really easily. When they get in a stuck defensive state, when they get into a stuck defensive state, they literally just shake it off. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. <laughs> I'm not saying I expect you to do that. But literally, animals shake it off. This is, again, Peter Levine does a lot of uh, lecturing and interviews and book writing about this. Not just about the shaking things off, but but that is part of it. They shake it off and they move on with life. Humans can. We don't really do that. We can. Uh, crying is kind of our way of doing that. That, that. that is an avenue of how we can shake off some trauma energy, possibly. When animals shake it off, they, well, first off, animals are really in tune with their bodies. They kind of have to be, and they don't really have the conscious thoughts that we have, as far as I know. They definitely don't have the words and the concepts that we have. They don't have the self-judgment. They don't have the, ju- the judgment about each other. When animals feel this defensive energy, they allow it to be there, and they allow it to discharge as it's intended to, or as it's evolved to do. Animals, when they feel this, they will spontaneously shake and, and tremble and their breathing will re-regulate itself just spontaneously. Again, humans can do this. When we cry, we this is kind of what we do. We spontaneously breathe, we shake, we tremble. If you really can cry and have a really good cry, it's possible that after that you feel lighter. You might feel more likely to socially engage. You might breathe easier, right? It doesn't mean that everything's solved, but Crying can be a way, mindfully crying, let me change that, mindfully crying and really feeling it can be a way to release some of this stuck defensive energy. Does it solve all your problems? No. And, you know, look, a lot of people cry and they don't feel better afterwards. But that's potentially, at least partly, because while they're crying, they're judging the heck out of themselves. They don't like it. They're telling themselves to stop rather than mindfully being with those feelings. They're doing everything they can to, to make it stop. And what really needs to happen is to mindfully be with these feelings. And crying can be an avenue 
to allowing some of this stuff to discharge. We can also use meditation and feel this stuff and really tap into it when we can, not right away. Eventually tap into some of this stuck defensive energy. And if we can do that, that can allow it to discharge as well. Talking about it can help, like in therapy, but a big part of what I do in therapy at least is not just talking about it, but helping my clients to, first off, be anchored in, the, in safety, first off. And second, to tap into some of that uh, defensive energy, feel it in the moment, but not too far. Not, don't, we don't want to go too far into it until we're ready to. And so we feel the defensive energy and then come back into the safety anchor and then check in with the defensive energy again and then come back to a safety anchor. That's called pendulation. Pendulation can help. Pendulation is something you can do uh, through meditation as well. And the process of feeling a little bit at a time is called titration. That's something that you can do on your own as well if you're ready for it. Laughter can also be helpful. If you think about it, laughter and crying are pretty similar. There's a spontaneous uh, breathing and sounds coming out, right? And even with really difficult things, we can laugh at and we kind of feel better when we're laughing. We are socially, we can be socially engaged. If you watch a funny movie with somebody, don't you look at each other in the eyes and, and laugh together? and you talk about it. So there's some social engagement there. And on top of the spontaneous breathing, there also is this sort of like shaking kind of thing that goes along with it, right? And after you laugh, like really laugh, you can feel lighter. Difficult things are more manageable, or they potentially can be. Does it solve everything? No. Essential, though, to all of these processes is developing the strength of your vagal break. Again, building safety anchors can be helpful for this, it doesn't exactly, like just building the strength of your vagal break doesn't quite solve, I don't think, solve the problem of the stuck energy. But it definitely helps to lay the foundation for climbing the polyvagal ladder. If you don't have that vagal break developed enough, you're probably not going to be able to feel into that stuck defensive energy, be with it, and allow it to either return or to discharge. It really helps to understand the concept of the polyvagal ladder. I talked about that way back, I think in episode 101 at the start of this series. So knowing the polyvagal ladder can help you to have a blueprint, I guess, or a roadmap of what comes next. So if you, you'll know if you're in a shutdown state, the next step is to have that sympathetic flight, fight energy return. It'll probably be more of a fight energy, like an aggressive sort of uh, sympathetic energy. So having that polyvagal ladder roadmap, is that weird having two metaphors at once, a ladder and a roadmap? Having that polyvagal ladder metaphor and knowing where you're at on, the poly, on your own polyvagal ladder can really help with knowing what's coming next. And if you know what's coming or what can come next, that might help you to welcome it, to be with it, and to do some, you know, maybe some journaling around knowing that if I know some sympathetic energy is coming, I can start to journal around power or or strength, or aggressiveness in a healthy way, anger in a healthy way. So I can start to journal around these things and allow myself to feel them because I know it's, that's the next step anyways. But I can also know that if I allow myself to feel my shutdown energy or lack of energy, that what, if I do that successfully, what might happen is that I feel some energy return into my system. So having the polyvagal ladder metaphor can be helpful with just knowing what's going on right now and knowing what's coming next. If you don't know the polyvagal ladder, go way back to episode 101 of this podcast, and that's where you want to start. Deb Dana also writes about this. I'll put a link to her book. I definitely recommend you uh, buy her book, Polyvagal Theory in Therapy. 
if you're, even if you're not a therapist, I think it's really helpful and it has a really easy explanation of polyvagal theory along with polyvagal ladder and other concepts. But I'll put some links in the description. Again, lots of links to, to those, to my interview with her, to her book, and to an episode I did on the polyvagal ladder. I've mentioned a few times the idea of feeling into these somatic pieces of the stuck defensive energy. That might sound like a lot, and maybe it is. If you're not used to it, it could be a lot. If you're expecting it and you do feel that energy, even if you're expecting it, it still can feel like a lot, especially if you're not used to it. And especially if the vagal break isn't uh, developed enough. That, that is, again, the, the, so, the, the strength of your social engagement pathways. If those aren't developed enough, then it's going to be very overwhelming to feel this stuff come back. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to the somatic pieces of the stuck state, think about it this way, right? So under your emotions, you probably have emotions you can recognize. And maybe you just feel numb and you don't have emotions. Fine, that, that, that in and of itself is an experience that we, we can um, build from. But you probably have something like rage or anger or sadness or anxiety, something that you can feel that you're well aware of. Okay, so you take that and then I want you to imagine that underneath whatever emotion pops into your mind or that you feel, whatever, whatever that emotion is, underneath that are these feelings in your body. If you think about it, your emotions, you, you feel them somehow, right? They don't just exist in your mind. You feel them. And when we can feel where they come from, because they live in the body somewhere, when you feel anger, you feel it where? In your hands as they tighten up or in your teeth as they uh, grind you know, into themselves? You might be able to notice those things, but there's also heartbeat changes. Your body is doing something. There are, there are these somatic sensations happening within you, in your body. And that's what I mean. There's, there are these somatic pieces of your stuck state. So you might first feel them as emotions, but underneath those emotions are these uh, state, these bodily changes, like tensing of your muscles. But even underneath that, if you can go deeper into it through like meditation or through therapy, through talking about it, through journaling, and really feeling these things, then even underneath those bodily shifts, like that you notice, like um, muscle tension. Even then, you might feel these sensations of those those bodily changes. Hope that makes sense. So when you feel, let's say you feel angry, you might say, I feel some tension in my chest. So you'd feel the anger as emotion. You'd feel the tension in your chest as some sort of shift happening. But you could even go deeper with it and start to explain what it feels like further. So you might say that there's some heat there, or you might say that it feels like, let's say, sandpaper. You might be able to describe the tension further. You also might be able to notice that there are images that pop into your mind, like the image of, I don't know, lava might pop into your mind to describe the feeling of, of that tense chest. I'm just making stuff up here. Other things might pop into your mind, like a shape, or if, if you were to ask yourself how big the thing is, or, or how long does it go on for, answers might populate in your mind. So it's up to you just to notice those, and that can help you to stay with that sensation without it being over potentially without it being overwhelming and that's what i mean by feeling into them in therapy it's i would say it's easier i think to have someone help you kind of guide 
guide you to feel these things and to notice these things and to be with them and to come back to safety when it gets too tough and then go back into the into these feelings as as we're ready to doing it on your own and just sitting there and closing your eyes and meditating into it is possible but it's something you kind of have to build the experience for and so if you can do this and feel these these underlying sensations in your body and be with them it's kind of like when you mindfully attune to it the way I frame it in my mind at least, that when you mindfully attune to these sensations, it kind of gives them permission to do the next step. So when you mindfully attune to the sensation of numbness and emptiness and loneliness, and you feel that probably like in your gut as this hole, maybe in your gut, like this emptiness, and you can mindfully attune to that and be with it, you might notice some shifts happening. You might notice some energy coming back in your system or your breathing start to shift. It's like we have to have our conscious mind in sync or attuned with our body. And these we talk about these things as if they're separate, but they're really not. So once they're in tune, that's when the body as, an, as a whole organism can begin to go to the next step. Animals are in tune. Their body and their mind are one. Human beings, we've kind of split those things. They're not split, but we've successfully sort of split them through all of our wonderful cognitions and reasoning and excuses and stories that we make up about ourselves, which are true or not true. But, uh, you know, human beings, we've sort of split these things up, but really they're not, they're not uh, separate things. Being with these sensations and allowing them to do what they do while maintaining access to safety and being anchored in the present moment. That, that is absolutely essential to feeling into these somatic pieces of our stuck defensive states. Peter Levine, again, does a lot of great work around this, especially when it comes to that shock trauma, that uh, the acute life events. He does a, real, a lot of great work around that. He does a lot of great work with teaching people in very, very simple ways how to be with these sensations and allow them to discharge. That's about it, though. I do hope you've enjoyed and benefited and gotten something out of this episode on trauma and how it relates to the polyvagal theory. If you're interested in building safety anchors, you can find it on my website, justinlmft.com. There's also a whole bunch of other polyvagal resources on justinlmft.com, like downloadable PDFs and other stuff that you can print out or give to your clients or share with your therapist or whoever. justinlmft.com. Thank you so much for listening. I, hope, I do really hope you got something to help you climb your own polyvagal ladder and maybe got a more clear or more comprehensive understanding of how trauma and the polyvagal theory relate. Bye. This podcast is not therapy, not intended to be therapy or be a replacement for therapy. Nothing in this creates or indicates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek for one in your area if you're experiencing mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed to be specific life advice. It is for educational and entertainment purposes only. More resources are available in the description of this episode and in the footer of justinlmft.com.